Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives, and making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, we continue with the second night of the Our Lady of Good Counsel 2016 Parish Mission. The title of the mission is Today Salvation Has Come to This House. He titled this talk, What is Your Deepest Desire for Your Children or for Your Grandchildren? Here is Father John Ricardo. Father, we are indeed humbly in awe, in awe of your great patience, in awe of your willingness to wait for us, in awe of your mercy, in awe of the gift of your Son, Father, we pray that tonight would be an experience of salvation coming more deeply into our lives. Tonight's not about filler. We don't just do missions so that we can have something in the evenings during Lent. Lord, we do this because we're convinced that you wish to do something in our lives. We're convinced you wish to do something tonight, not in some of us, but in all of us. That's why we're here. That's why you've invited us. And so here in the presence of your Son and the Blessed Sacrament, gazing upon the most magnanimous and remarkable gift of self that he made for us upon the cross, we invite you in. Lord, we say that we're tired of the same old, same old. We're tired of the routine. We're tired of the rut. We're tired of being stuck. We're tired of the patterns of our life. We're tired of mediocrity. We're tired of settling for less than greatness. Lord, we want more. We know you made us for more. We're tired of hiding the light underneath a bushel. We're tired of not taking our rightful place in this community. We're tired of shying away from sharing the gospel with great love, but with great zeal. Lord, we ask that this city on a hill, which is Our Lady of Good Counsel, would have its light turned up ever brighter, simply for the glory and the honor of your name, simply so that all of those in this community who have not yet encountered you might do so, so that those who are stuck in patterns of sin, who feel hopeless, lost, who hide behind facades and masks, who appear to everybody else to be doing just fine, but internally to themselves when they look in the mirror are doing lousy, so that they might know you. For you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless and nothing satisfies the restlessness but you. So we entrust tonight into your hands. We ask for your grace to be upon us. Pray that you'd bathe this place in your Holy Spirit, that you would unleash grace upon us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Wow, if you didn't think it was going to be raw, there you go. I can't thank uh, people enough for stepping forward to do testimonies. They really are, for me, the highlight of the missions. They always have been every year that we've done these. I don't know about you. I'm so tired of masks. I'm tired of people feeling like they can't be real. I'm tired of feeling like I can't be real. So I'm grateful for uh, our brothers and sisters last night and again tonight and in advance tomorrow and Wednesday for being real and for letting the Lord talk through them. Pope Francis always reminds us that the church is a field hospital. And yes, we are. And Jesus said that he came to call the sick. That meant us. And we're all sick. Some of us are just obviously more so than others. So tonight I want to reflect on this question. And I realize that not everybody here is married or uh, has children or maybe has children at home or whatnot. So even though that's the case, I still think the Lord wants us to reflect on this tonight. And if you're one of those people who, like me anyway, doesn't have physical children, then we can join together and pray for those who do. The question is simply, what's your deepest desire for your children or for your grandchildren? So let's start with the rest of the story. What do you think happened after Zacchaeus came down? What do you think happened after that night when Jesus came to his house and had dinner with him? We don't hear anything about Zacchaeus' family, but it's reasonable to presume that he had one. Celibacy was a very rare thing at the time of Jesus. There were few who lived that way, but it's 
relatively safe to surmise that Zacchaeus wasn't one of them. So let's presume, at least for tonight anyway, that he had a wife and that he had children, which again, I think is a reasonable presumption. What do you think happened to them after that night? Do you think the encounter that Jesus had with Zacchaeus was a private moment for Zacchaeus? Just something between him and the Lord? Or do you think it impacted everybody in Zacchaeus's life? Here's a man who went from being an outcast to suddenly experiencing forgiveness, experiencing love, experiencing restoration, experiencing having the reset button of his life hit. Do you think he told anybody about that? You better believe it. Because Zacchaeus didn't get religion that day. Zacchaeus had a life-changing encounter with Jesus that day. Those are two very different things. So surely this was felt by not just him, but by everybody, and by especially his children. Of course, the challenge for us today, as we say over and over again here and in many places in the church, not just Catholic, but throughout the Christian world, is that for many families, it's been many generations since an actual encounter with Jesus has happened. And so we say over and over that it's not an all-too-uncommon Catholic story to go something like this. Born, baptized, maybe when I was six weeks, four weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks, whatever it was. Made my first confession when I was seven or eight. Made my first communion when I was eight. My family took me to church once in a while because they didn't want to be radical or anything. So, like, when we went on vacation, we would never go because you take vacation from God when you go on vacation. Even though there's a church somewhere, wherever we go, that was just a bit much. So this way we could sleep in. Then it was time for confirmation, got confirmed. Then I went to high school and did whatever I did in high school, which meant I probably stopped going to church. Went to college, totally stopped going to church. Got married in a church because I'm Catholic. And that's what we do. And then we had a child and we baptized him and we just hit repeat. And that's the Christian life for many people, which means we never met Jesus. Objectively, we met Jesus. We encountered him in baptism. We encountered him in the Eucharist. We encountered him in confession. We encountered him in confirmation. But subjectively, because nobody explained it to me, I didn't know what was going on. And for many of us, I know because I've heard it, that's our experience. We were, as we often say around here, sacramentalized, but not evangelized. Which means when a parent had a child and they stood up here as they stand up here when we do baptisms and they were asked the question, you have asked to have your child baptized. In doing so, you are accepting the responsibility of training her in the practice of the faith. It will be your duty to bring her up to keep God's commandments as Christ taught us by loving God and our neighbor. Do you clearly understand what you are undertaking? And every parent says yes. But the reality is, for many of them, the answer was no. For many of us, the answer was no. Maybe through no fault of their own. Maybe we didn't know. Maybe nobody really prepared us for baptism. Maybe nobody explained what it was that that meant. So when children come to confession, I always ask them, do you go to church every week? No. They almost always answer. And I always suggest to them, so you can hear me say it, if they ever ask you this. Of course, they won't ask us. They'll ask our friends who aren't here at the mission. I always say, just go home and ask your parents, did you know that you promised to take me to church every week when you baptized me? I did? Yeah, who told you that? Father John did. I'll call him. Please do. I'd love to talk. But given the fact that many parents have never had an encounter with Jesus, how can they possibly know what they're saying yes to when they answer that question? That's one of the reasons that we offer things like Alpha, so that people can have a life-changing encounter with Jesus, so that they can introduce their children to it. Tonight, in a particular way, I just want to maybe throw this out. This is what I feel like the Lord just wants to say and do with us. It's something like a challenge for us as Christians, but particularly as Christian families, to reestablish a new normal or to go back to genuine normalcy, a biblical vision of a normal Christian family. So I want to walk through tonight a series of scriptural texts. We could pick many, but I'm just going to walk through a 
seven or eight of them. Then I want to comment a little bit on a couple of texts that come from Pope John Paul II and a few others. But I want to do it all in a way that kind of helps us to zero in our expectations, biblically speaking anyway, of a mother and a father, so that we can reclaim, if you will, the biblical vision of marriage and family in a particular way. Because today salvation has come to this house is supposed to be something like a challenge or an exhortation or an invitation from God to moms and dads to do that for their children. Parents are supposed to be the ones who bring salvation first to their house. That's what it means for a family to be the domestic church, which is what the family is. The family is a house church. It's supposed to be the first place children encounter God. We'll talk a little bit about that. Then I want to offer a few suggestions that we might want to ponder at the end. So there's too many scriptures to pick, but let me just walk through a series of them. First passage that I want to look at is Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21. Exodus chapter 12 is the descriptions of how it is that the Israelites are supposed to celebrate the Passover, which is the feast for the Jewish people. Starting in verse 21, it says this, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel. This is while they're still in Egypt. They haven't left yet. They're still there. They've been there for 430 years, oppressed, tyrannized, enslaved, tortured, put to death, zero existence, no life, no purpose, except to be a tool of the pharaohs. It's a humiliating experience. And God says through Moses, get ready. I am about to deliver you. He's done nine plagues. Here comes the 10th. But in preparation for the 10th is this celebration. So Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, select lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood which is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to slay the Egyptians And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to slay you. You shall observe this rite as an ordinance for you and for your sons and daughters forever. And when you come to the land which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what are we doing? What's up with this? Why this lamb? Why the blood? Why the unleavened bread? Why these bitter herbs? When? Expect them to ask why, right? Your parents, you got kids. Kids ask why. We want to encourage them to ask why. This is like a child putting the ball on the tee. And the parent is supposed to swing away and to hit the ball out of the park. You're supposed to long for your son or daughter to ask this question. Why are we doing this? When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he slew the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. What are the parents telling them? Why do we do this? Here's why we do this. Because we were slaves for 430 years. That's why we do this. Thank you for asking. You don't have any experience of this, but we did, or our parents did, or our grandparents did, and they taught us that they were once slaves, and God did remarkable things and brought them out of Egypt. That's why we do this. This isn't some empty ritual, because our lives changed that night. The history of our people changed that night. Everything was different that night. That's why this night is different than every other night. Because once we were slaves and now we are slaves no more. Thank you for asking. In the next chapter, Exodus 13, Moses goes on to teach. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. Don't ever forget where you were. Those people who told that testimony tonight, never forget where you were. Never forget the bondage. Never forget the sin. Never forget the sense of shame. Never forget the sense of hopelessness, being stuck, being in a pattern. Never forget that. Tell your children 
Once we were slaves. Once I was a slave, but no longer. Because God's done something in my life. And just as he broke into my life, expect him to break into yours too. Why? Because that's what God does. God is insanely powerful and ridiculously merciful. And he turns around and comes back for us. For by strength of the hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. This day you are to go forth in the month of Abib. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day. Why are we doing this? Here's why. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Even today, when the Jewish people celebrate the feast of the Passover, they understand it as an event which is happening that night. It's not just retelling something that happened long ago. They experience it that night as if they are being delivered. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstlings of your cattle that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstling of an ass you shall redeem with a lamb, or you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come, expect the question. When in time to come, your son asks you, why are we doing this? How come we got to go to church today? Like no one's ever heard that. Why do we have to go to church every week? What does this mean? You shall say to him, here's what it means. By strength. Of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of bondage. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of cattle. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Next passage, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Still Moses, still talking, still telling us to expect our children to ask us questions. Still telling us what to do when they ask. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the ordinances which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is why the context of the Ten Commandments is so crucial. We stress this over and over again when people come into the church through the classes that we teach. Whenever we ask people, how did you learn the Ten Commandments? Almost everybody says uh, they were just written on the board and we were told to memorize them. Which is a horrible way to learn the Ten Commandments. Not the memorization part, but the pulling them out of context part. Children especially need to know like where the Israelites were when God gave the Ten Commandments because the world's impression of the commandments says these are impositions, restrictions, limitations of our freedom. Uh Uh-uh. No, they're not. The God who gave the Ten Commandments is the God who frees, who liberates, who rescues, who delivers from bondage. Where were the Israelites before they got the Ten Commandments? They were in Egypt. What were they doing? They were slaves. How did they get out? God rescued them. Then he gave them the Ten Commandments. If he wanted them to be miserable, he would have left them in Egypt. So the commandments can't be about misery. They can't be about restrictions. They've got to be about freedom. Those are the commandments that Moses is talking about. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the ordinances, which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Look at the generations here. You, your son, your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then here comes the Shema, the great prayer of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. That is to say, there is no other Lord. Not sports, not anything. There is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. And underline this in our hearts. Huh? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Why? Because everything changed because of what God did for us. Because we're not talking about religion. We're talking about faith. We're talking about someone who's revealed himself to us. We're talking about somebody who has acted in our lives. That's what we're talking about. And because that's what we're talking about, we're passing that on to you. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. A little bit later in Deuteronomy, Moses writes this. It's in chapter 31. As time goes by, God's expecting, as time goes by, people are going to forget. They're not going to have experience of being delivered out of Egypt. That's why the story has to be retold over and over and over. That's why the experience of Passover has to be celebrated as the highlight of the year. That's why it's the first month of the year. That's why everything revolves around that. Why? Because our identity is the identity of a people who were slaves and have been delivered. That wasn't just a little incidental moment in our history. It changed everything for us. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. That doesn't mean be terrified of God. That means to be in awe. That's what that means, to have a holy sense of awe in the presence of the God who isn't up there in the clouds somewhere, who acts and intervenes and rescues and does dramatic things to help his people. And learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you are going over to the Jordan to possess. One last passage in the Old Testament, and there could be lots. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders which he has wrought. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children so that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That indictment is an indictment that goes over and over again throughout the history of the Old Testament. Namely, the words, they forgot. They forgot that we were slaves. We forgot that we were slaves. We forgot that we were rescued. We forgot that we had no life. We forgot that we were stuck. We forgot that we got out because God did something. And our children never learned because we didn't tell them. In all of this, and in so many other places that we could look, we didn't even look at the figure of Abraham, but there's so many places we could look. The Old Testament over and over again is just laying out the mission and the task of parenting. And the mission and the task of parenting is really simple. It's to hand on the covenant. That's the most important thing that a mom and dad can do to their children. Hand on the covenant. Tell your children what God has done for all of our people and for us. So moms and dads are supposed to be proclaimers or handers-on, if you would, of God's mercy and his love and salvation. How else would children ever know? Nothing. Nothing compares to that task of a mom or dad. 
when, not if, when you die and you stand in front of God, he's not going to ask you whether or not you taught your kid how to play baseball. When, not if, you die. He's not going to ask you about the school that you sent him to. When, not if, you die and you stand face to face in front of God, he's going to ask, did you hand on the covenant? You can't make a child accept the faith. Nobody can. A child has to own that. But our task is to hand it on, to shine brightly, to reestablish the normalcy of faith in our homes. Just like in the Old Testament, there's lots of places we could look at the new. I just want to look at three quick passages for us to maybe go back to in our own prayer this week or tomorrow morning, if you wish. The first is Acts chapter 10. This is the story of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He lives in Caesarea by the water. The whole story of Acts chapter 10 is about a vision which simultaneously has happened to Cornelius and another one that's happening to St. Peter many miles away. It's my favorite passage in all the Bible. It's Peter having a vision of a sheet being lowered and all of these animals inside the sheet. And God says to Peter, rise, slaughter, and eat. That's supposed to be funny, actually. (laughs) See, you can't be a vegetarian. No offense to any vegetarians. You can't be a vegetarian and be a Jew. At least once a year, you have to eat meat. (laughs) Because you have to eat lamb on Passover. You have to. You have to eat the lamb. It's not enough to sacrifice the lamb and put his blood in the door. you got to eat the lamb. So anyway, Cornelius is having this vision, and then Peter's having this vision. The point of the vision of the animals is for God to reveal to Peter that there's nobody that God has created that is unclean or impure. That especially means the Gentiles and non-Jews. Until this chapter, St. Peter has probably never, ever been inside the house of a non-Jewish person. That never would have happened. They just didn't do that. Just... Skipping around here, the point is just to kind of give us a flavor of what's happening in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. So he's not Jewish, but he's a God-fearer. Gave alms liberally to the people and prayed constantly to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius... And he stared at him in terror. See, that's the response to angels. Angels aren't cute little fat cherubs sitting on a ledge. Angels, when they appear in Scripture, cause people to be terrified. All right? So Cornelius sees the angel. He's terrified. He says, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms, good passage for us to think about during Lent, have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those that waited on him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Peter goes, obviously, shows up. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was keeping the ninth hour of prayer in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright apparel, saying, Cornelius... Your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the seaside. So I sent to you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here present in the sight of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. While Peter was saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So Peter's been preaching. That's what we skipped. And the believers who came with Peter were amazed. See, this hasn't happened before. God hasn't descended upon the non-Jews yet. This is when it begins. They're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded, this is the whole point of this passage, them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to remain for some days. The them is Cornelius's house. See, Cornelius has a vision. He sends for Peter. Peter comes. The result of Peter preaching to Cornelius is Cornelius's whole household is baptized because that's the father's responsibility. Cornelius isn't going, well, you know, when they grow up, maybe I'll let them make a decision on their own. Uh-uh. Cornelius is pulling his children into the faith which he is now experiencing himself. Another example of that comes a little bit later in Acts chapter 16. 
So setting sail, therefore, from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. And when she was baptized with her household, she besought us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The point of those two passages is simply to show, I could show another example too in Acts of a man named Crispus who's baptized together with his household. When a person encounters Jesus, it's never just them, especially when it's a father Because primarily the father's responsibility is to introduce his children to faith. Lastly, I want to put a good word in for moms and particularly for grandmas. Second Timothy chapter two, Paul's writing to Timothy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you. We have no idea about Timothy's father, but we know that his mom and his grandmother were remarkable examples of faith. There's a number of us here who I know are grandparents whose children are long since gone from the house and they're praying fervently night and day, not only for their children, but perhaps in a particular way for their grandchildren. Let me jump to a couple passages from John Paul II. The first is from a document that he wrote shortly after the close of the Jubilee year, which has a fun Latin title, which basically means now what do we do? So now that we've crossed the threshold of this new millennium, what do we do now? So this is paragraph 31. The Holy Father is now talking about trying to help us establish a new normal. That's the point of this right now. That's really what I feel like the Lord wants to just encourage us with tonight. So John Paul writes, this is in 2000, beginning of 2001. It is also clear, however, that the paths to holiness are personal and call for a genuine training in holiness adapted to people's needs. As the council itself explained, that would be the Vatican Council, the second one, this ideal of perfection must not be misunderstood as if it involved some kind of extraordinary existence possible only for a few uncommon heroes of holiness. I cannot not think of my dad right now. My dad was an ordinary example of holiness for our family and for me. So this call to perfection, we heard this at Mass just the other day, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The call to perfection is a universal call to every single one of us. The call to every person here is to be a saint. It's the only call that matters, to be holy, to be a saint, to belong to God, to give everything to God, everything to God, to put Him first, to let Him reign. That call is not for a few of us, it's for every single one of us. The ways of holiness are many according to the vocation of each individual. I thank the Lord that in these years he has enabled me to beatify and canonize a large number of Christians and among them many lay people, lest we think that only priests are supposed to be saints, who attained holiness in the most ordinary circumstances of life. Great. You work at a bank? Be a saint. You're a stay-at-home mom? Be a saint. You're a stay-at-home dad? Be a saint. You run a company? Be a saint. Whatever you do, be a saint. Do it all for the glory and honor of God. The time has come to repropose wholeheartedly to everyone this high standard of ordinary Christian living. See, this is ordinary Christian living. This is an extraordinary. This is what this parish should be, a parish of people who are striving to be saints. That's the normal expectation that we should have of every one of us, that you should have of me and I should have of you. That's normalcy. The whole life of the Christian community and of Christian families must lead in this direction. It's also clear, however, that the paths to holiness are personal and call for a genuine training in holiness, a training which is done usually by parents to their children, adapted to people's needs. This training must integrate the resources offered to everyone with both the traditional forms of individual and group assistance, as well as the more recent forms of support offered in associations and movements recognized by the church. That's from Novo millennio innuente, or where do we go from here, as I loosely translate the Latin, which is not a very good translation, by the way. Lastly, I want to look at one passage from a document that Pope John Paul II wrote on the role of the Christian family. This is paragraph 25. 
And it's speaking in a particular way right now to dads. Love for his wife as mother of their children and love for the children themselves are for the man the natural way of understanding and fulfilling his own fatherhood. Above all, where social and cultural conditions so easily encourage a father to be less concerned with his family, or at any rate, less involved in the work of education, efforts must be made to restore socially the conviction that the place and task of the father in and for the family is of unique and irreplaceable importance. As experience teaches, the absence of a father causes psychological and moral imbalance and notable difficulties in family relationships, as does, in contrary circumstances, the oppressive presence of a father, especially where there still prevails the phenomenon of machismo or a wrong superiority of male prerogatives, which humiliates women and inhibits the development of healthy family relationships. In revealing and in reliving on earth the very fatherhood of God. A man is called upon to ensure the harmonious and united development of all the members of the family. Dads, you want to know what your task is? That's your task. Reveal and relive on earth the fatherhood of God, period. Then he tells us how to do it. He will perform this task by exercising generous responsibility for the life conceived under the heart of the mother by a more solicitous commitment to education, a task he shares with his wife, by work which is never a cause of division in the family, but promotes its unity and stability, and by means of the witness he gives of an adult Christian life, which effectively introduces the children into the living experience of Christ and the church, which brings it back to the scriptures and what it is that we saw Moses telling fathers to be doing for their children. When they ask you questions, tell them. Tell them why we do what we do. Now, undoubtedly, there isn't a one of us here who's done this perfectly. So I don't want people to feel beat up because that's what the evil one wants to do. So let me give you this quick quote from the Bishop of Phoenix, Thomas Olmsted, who wrote this tremendous document. It might be the best thing I've ever seen for men to consider reading about how to live as a Christian man, a Christian husband, a Christian father. It's from a document that came out this past year. It's entitled Into the Breach. And near the ending of it, he has this, I think, really encouraging word for those of us who might be prone to hear the evil one's lies in our ears right now. Finally, I want to offer a special word for those men who know that they have failed in their fatherhood. This is true to a greater or lesser degree in each and every one of us. This can happen through addiction, abandonment, marital conflict, emotional and spiritual detachment, failing to guide the family in faith, abortion, physical and or emotional abuse, with the countless ways that we obscure the image of God as the loving father. I stand with you as an imperfect father, asking God the Father to make up for the ways that we fail in this greatest of masculine missions. It is important to acknowledge the enemy's tactics Satan will attempt to drag us down into a despair that can lead us to abandon our fatherhood even further because of our sins. Yet we must never give up, my sons. Pray and be renewed in the sacrament of reconciliation. Christ strengthens us through confession and the Holy Eucharist to spend ourselves in rebuilding fatherhood in whatever way possible. The devil's game's really simple. It just wants to get us into a pit. Don't let him put you there. All right, let me try to bring some things to a close and offer something concrete to consider doing. This isn't intended to be an exhaustive list either, and I know many of us do many of these things, but it's always nice to have some takeaways of what we might consider doing. Let me throw out nine things to consider. First, in the name of God, I beg you, make a decision tonight if you have not already made one, that you will never again miss Mass on Sunday, ever. Unless your house is on fire or you got the flu or you're on your way to the hospital to have a baby. Jesus says, right, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus doesn't lie. He means that. I cannot be great on my own. You cannot be great on your own. You long to be great. I long to be great. Without his grace and the most powerful source of grace known to humanity, known to the world, known to creation is the Eucharist. So make a decision, you're never going to miss Mass again. There's a whole set of us who, when we go on vacation, we just skip Mass. Somehow, like, God just becomes insignificant. I know really good families who just, 
ah, you know, I'm sure God understands. I wouldn't be so sure. And when your children say, we're going on vacation, why are we going to go to Mass? Here's why. Because once we were slaves, and we are slaves no longer. Because, see, we haven't been rescued from tyranny. We've been rescued from death. We've been rescued from hell. We've been rescued from Satan. We've been rescued from sin. That's why we go. Because God loves us, and we love him. Second, I just kind of want to put a shout out. There's a set of families in our parish who come to 630 Mass with their children. I can't even fathom what it's like to get one child up at whatever time they need to get up to come to 6.30 morning mass, let alone two, three, four, five. But we've got families who do that. And it's inspiring as all get out to everybody who sees them, and especially to me. There's something really different about daily mass versus Sunday mass. Because the people who are here on daily mass, like, they all want to be here. That's not the case on Sunday. A lot of us do, but not everybody wants to be here on Sunday. That's why we come late and leave early. I don't know how else to explain that. But everybody who gets up to go to Mass at 6.30 in the morning, they want to be there. And the people who come to 8 o'clock Mass, they want to be there. Or they come to Wednesday night, they want to be there. And there's a different feel, a totally different feel to weekday Mass. And if you're not in the habit of doing that, Lent's an extraordinary time to consider trying it. And if you have children at home, it's a great thing to do. Or if you've got grandkids, offer to take them and bring them with you. Third, Pray, duh. Let me make that a little bit more obvious. Pray before meals. How many of us don't pray before meals? Us. here, People here on a mission, on a Monday night, in the dark, when it's cold. And there's still a number of us who don't pray before meals, out loud. It's awkward. I don't know why. We forget. Don't forget. Especially if you've got kids at home. Teach your kids. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, bless us, the Lord, and these thy gifts. But try, try, try not to do that. And dads, try to lead and try to make up the prayer. Just pray from your heart, however awkward that is. Because if you've got kids at home, you're letting them hear you talk to God. And in so doing, you're teaching them how to pray. It's an extraordinary thing. It accomplishes so many different tasks all at once. So pray before meals. If you've got kids at home, pray with your kids before they go to bed. If you've got kids at home, don't pray so that they will see you pray, but pray so that they will see you pray, if you catch my meaning. Don't pray to get noticed, but pray intentionally so that they will see you. Prayer is not intuitive. I'm more and more convinced of that as I get older and I work with people in the church. Most of us just don't know how to pray. We just did a talk in a discipleship group on prayer, and most of the people came out still confused. I don't know how to do this. Like, get more basic. How do I talk to God? Teach your children or your grandchildren, how to talk to God. Let them hear you stumble, fumble, bumble, whatever. Who cares? There's nothing wrong with that. Be real, be raw. But I forever will remember watching my dad every night before he went to bed, get on his knees and kneel at the foot of his bed. And that memory is burned into my mind. And I'm sure he didn't do it so that I would see him, but I'm sure he did. And I'm glad he did. Because now I do the same. And I do it because that's what my dad taught me to do. He taught me that's what a man does. A man prays. He gets on his knees. That's the posture you adopt. You thank God. It's how you end your night. Every night. So pray. Fourth. It's a great thing to do as a family. Pick a night sometime before Sunday and read the readings. Read them at dinner. Surely we've all figured out by now part of the challenge of coming to Mass on Sunday is the readings don't seem to make an awful lot of sense especially for a biblically illiterate people, which most of us are, unfortunately. Like, we don't know the story of Scripture. And so we come out of a crazy household in the morning. We've had whatever on in the car as we got here. Conversations are going on about whatever they're going on. We walk in and, boom, we hear the first reading. It's like, where did that come from? What was that about? Well, don't let it be that way. Read the Scriptures ahead of time. Read them as a family. Get ready. Prepare. Fifth. Sunday, this is an extraordinary, simple thing to do that, again, it just takes time and an intentionality and deliberateness. But eat together as a family and talk about the Mass. You can spend two minutes on the lion's loss, that's fine. But then get to the Mass. Talk about the worship. Talk about the scriptures. Ask kids, what'd you hear? What'd God say to you? Huh? Even asking that question builds an expectation in a child that, I don't know, maybe God's going to talk to me. 
Children hear God talk all the time. We might learn something if we actually ask them what he said to them. Out of the mouths of babes. It's amazing what children hear. They expect to hear God. Give them an opportunity to share. It's a beautiful thing. So talk about what we hear. Sixth, if you've never been to praise and worship with your children, bring them. It's incredible. They'll hear something like they never hear. Catholics do that? If you've never been to praise and worship, come. See the children who are here. See how uninhibited they are in front of God. Seventh, sign up for a house blessing. Goodness knows I got a lot of nights set aside. If you've never had your home blessed, it's a really beautiful thing to do. Eight, if you don't have images of faith in your home, consider putting some up. A crucifix first and foremost, huh? An image of the sacred heart of Jesus or the immaculate heart of Mary. A holy water font. People don't know that you can have those in your home. Put one in your home. Put one by your door on your way out of the garage as you get into your car so you can bless yourself every morning or so you can bless your kids. Put one in your bedroom. Think God wants to be in your bedroom? <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> Absolutely. He wants to be everywhere. Let him in. But find some different ways to let it be known that this is a home where God dwells. And lastly, think about hosting a Bible study or Alpha like we heard in the testimony tonight. In your home, one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to find a way to help people understand God gave us homes so that our homes can be the primary places where we evangelize, not the church. This isn't the primary place we evangelize. This is the place where we come to get fed so as to go out and to do the work of evangelization. That's supposed to happen in our homes. Like if you've got kids at home and you host a Bible study and your kids see you host a Bible study, you don't think that tells them something? Makes an impression? Leaves a memory? My folks did that over and over and over again when I was growing up. My mom had a prayer meeting in her house every week at noon, once a week. They did Bible studies all the time in our house. They had priests come over and say mass in their house all the time. I just learned, I guess that's what you do in a home. A home is supposed to be a place where God dwells. Not the church is the place where God dwells. Our home is the place where he dwells. So consider hosting Alpha in your home. It's one of the ways that we're trying to help Alpha get into the neighborhoods. It's not just having it here or at the box bar, but doing it in people's homes. We've had a set of couples of various different ages consider doing that. It's a great thing to do. All right, let me sum up all this in four things and then leave you with a last quote from Pope Francis. We'll pray and get out of here. So this is how I'd sum up tonight. First, Pope Francis uses this word over and over and over and over and over again. It shows up in everything he writes and says, and it's a huge word for us in this parish. Encounter. Children are supposed to encounter God first and foremost in their mom and dad. That's where I'm supposed to meet him first. Because the home's the domestic church. Are they? Second, the first teachers of God's mercy, the first proclaimers of God's salvation are mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. Is that true? Third, the task of a parent is to present a child to God. Again, there's a lot of us in here who have no greater heartache than the fact that our children are not walking with the Lord. I know that. That's not on you necessarily. I walked away from the faith for a long time. You've heard me talk about my dad ad nauseum by now and my mom. I didn't walk away from the faith because my parents didn't give me an incredible witness. I walked away from the faith because I'm a rebellious little snot. And so are you. And so are your children. We all are. We are prone to rebel against God. I can't make a child come to faith. That's why our mission is to offer every person in our community a life-changing encounter with Jesus. I can do nothing more than offer it. Someone has to own it. So parents can offer that. They present their children to God. And then the child at a certain age has to own it. Got to make a decision. The only way you can become a disciple is to will it. You got to go through the process of conversion. But you can so live your life as a mom and dad that a child, even when they walk away from the faith, as I did, knew, ah, this is a dumb way to live. I don't think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Why? Because my parents showed me a better way. How do I know that? Because they were happy and I was not. So present your children to God. And lastly, who cares where you were when you walked in here tonight? Really? Zacchaeus, when he's up on that tree, he had a lousy history. That night, after that dinner with Jesus, you can bet that house looked really different. He decided right then, things are going to change. And that's God's invitation to us. 
tonight, I don't care where we were when we walked in, and none of us are done yet, none of us are perfect, none of us have achieved sanctity, none of us are finished products, there's more for us to do. Whatever it is we feel like the Lord's tapping us on the shoulder asking us to do, let's do it. Don't waste another day. You might not have tomorrow. Lastly, this is an extraordinary quote from Pope Francis that he said recently as he was talking about the year of mercy and a good, encouraging word to end on. The most important thing in the life of every man and woman is not that they should never fall along the way. So you got a past in here? Welcome to my world. Who cares? I'm on my face all the time. The important thing is always to get back up, not to stay on the ground licking your wounds. The Lord of mercy always forgives me. He always offers me the possibility of starting over. He loves me for what I am. He wants to raise me up and he extends his hand to me. This is one of the tasks of the church to help people perceive that there are no situations that they cannot get out of. For as long as we are alive, it's always possible to start over. All we have to do is let Jesus embrace us and forgive us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful tonight for the things that you have done in our lives and in the lives of our parents and our grandparents and all our ancestors, the ways in which you broke into their histories and showed yourself to them. Lord, we ask that you would break into our lives in a ever deeper and more profound and more real way tonight. Help us to go back to you and to hang on to those things that you spoke to us in, those words which were from you, which encouraged us to make some changes or adaptations or adjustments, corrections. Lord, we say again tonight that we're tired of anything less than everything. For anything less than everything is not enough. We want to be all in. We want to live as true disciples of your Son. We want to be real. We want the masks off. We want to know you. We want to make you known. We want to love you and we want to make you loved. For nothing else can satisfy the human heart. Give especially to those of us who still have children at home or grandchildren in our care the courage and the wisdom and the grace to tell them what you've done in our lives. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 874. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 874. 2016 Mission, number 2. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.